you have not already turned there, I invite you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Our text will be verses 5 through 11. I invite you to stand as we honor God's word through the reading of this text. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, hear the word of the Lord. For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. One of the blessings of the word of God is how it speaks such comfort and assurance to the human soul. I have been to a number of funerals where it was apparent that neither the deceased nor most of those in attendance were born again. And yet the officiating pastor would read passages like Psalm 23 or 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, attempting to offer comfort, yet to offer comfort to those who are yet enemies of the God who saves. But the word of God is not simply a book of comfort. It is a book of challenge. It is a book of confrontation. It is a book of conviction. A large portion of the word of God is not intent on comforting anyone at all if they are in sin. Rather, the word of God seeks to challenge the wayward of heart. The word of God seeks to reveal sin in the heart of the one who is yet to bow the knee to Christ. It is constantly reminding every hearer that the wages of your sin is eternal death damnation, separation from the blissful presence of God. In a sense, the word of God contains some of the most terrifying passages you could ever hear as a human. One such terrifying passage is found at the close of the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And in these three chapters, Jesus reveals to the multitudes, not just to the religious, but to the multitudes, that the path of salvation, not the path to salvation, but the path of salvation, is hard. How hard is it? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches the people that in order to see the kingdom of God, something must be true of you. And in Matthew 5.48, Jesus says this, Therefore, 
you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we may read those verses and just kind of skim by them and not give them a lot of thought, but I think the point that Jesus wanted to make in that moment was this. You need to be perfect, and you are not. What the people should have done in that moment is fall on their knees and begged Jesus for mercy. How can we, who are sinners, ever be perfect? And the answer to the question, there is no way, humanly speaking, there is one way, one truth, one life, and that's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This perfection that Jesus spoke of is not simply that which is external, because the Pharisees had the external down. Jesus said earlier in Matthew 5, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a shocking statement. I want you to think about maybe the most holy person that you can can think of, the person that you think has walked with God uh, the most fervently. And I want to tell you that uh, that trying to emulate their righteousness will never get you into heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that, that, that surpasses that of any human effort, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what do we do? We look to Jesus. That's Matthew 5. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches that true righteousness, if you're going to be truly right with God, if you are ever going to be perfected, it won't be because of you. It's going to be not because of outward displays of religion. It's not going to be because of your fasting and your prayers. It'll be because you've trusted the only one who can save your soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Matthew 7, Jesus drives the message of the need of perfection and this need of trusting in God alone for salvation this way. In Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. I pray to God that you desire to be the few and not the many. Beloved, according to Jesus, there are only two paths on which a person may journey in this life. One of them is the narrow and small way. It is a hard and difficult way. The other one is wide and broad and easy. The pitfall of the broad and easy way is that it ends with what? Death, destruction. The promise of the narrow and hard way is that it leads to what? Life eternal. How is this passage terrifying? There are many, beloved, who believe themselves to be on the narrow path that leads to life while they're actually on the broad way that leads to destruction. Are you one of those people? You're here this morning and you think, I'm okay with God, but there's nothing indicating that you're right with God other than your own trying to to convince yourself. Apart from the Lord intervening in such a life by means of faithful people who will preach the gospel to them, such will never realize that they're on the wrong path until it is too late. 
And so a bit later in the same passage, Jesus says to these same people in verses 21 through 23, what I would submit to you are indeed the most terrifying words any human will ever hear at any point in their existence. Jesus writes or says there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let me paint the scene for you. We have people who have been religious all their lives. These are people who have seen various aspects of the providence of God up close and personal through miracles and, and wondrous things. The people that Jesus were speaking to had seen Jesus do marvelous things and heard Jesus proclaim marvelous things. These were leaders <clears throat> among the people. These had been those who had been prophesying in Jesus' name and healing people in Jesus' name. They had cast out demons and performed, Jesus said, many miracles all in Jesus' name. They believed themselves to be on the narrow path to eternal life. Now upon approaching entrance into the kingdom of God, quite assured of themselves that they are going to enter, Jesus turns them away course this causes them to ask the question Jesus did we not do all this these wondrous things in your name and what does Jesus say to them not some but the most terrifying words any human could hear Jesus speak to them depart from me you who practice lawlessness I never knew you you do not belong to me, is what Jesus will say in that day. You were not serving me, but yourselves, he will say. You have no portion with me. And what will you do if that's you in that day? Let us be sure that we know what Jesus is speaking about in terms of the narrow gate and the broad gate. Jesus does not have in mind at all what I think sometimes we impose upon this text. He's not speaking in this text of the world's false religions and their philosophies as being the broad way and then Christianity being somehow the right and narrow way. It is true, those things are true, but Jesus is not referring to those things. What Jesus is speaking about is that within the realm of those who would even profess faith in Christ, these are people who said, we have done things in Jesus' name, that even among those, there will be some who arrive at heaven's gates and will be turned away because all the time they thought themselves to be on the narrow path, they were in fact on the broad path. Beloved, the broad path is not the path of the atheist. It is not the path of the Buddhist. It's not the path of the Muslim. The broad path is the, the easy believism 
the easy believism that we find so prevalent in, in modern churchianity. Just believe in Jesus. Just mount the words that he is Savior, and you have your fire insurance. You're guaranteed to go to heaven. Go to church every now and then. Sing a few songs about him when you feel like it. Even invite a person or two to church, and you will be able to sing, It is well with my soul. Well, you can sing it as well with your soul. It doesn't mean it is well with your soul. Their faith is a faith of convenience, not of conviction. And so they will be in the greatest terror you can ever imagine when they hear Jesus utter those words, depart from me, I never knew you. That is what makes this passage so frightening. How could they and how can we know then if we are truly saved? How can we have any assurance that we who are professing Christ are on the narrow way and I say praise God we can know? And part of what we've been looking at is seeking to answer the question. Such a passage, though, teaches us that not everyone who professes to be a Christian is in fact a Christian. Not everyone who gives praise to the Lord on a Sunday morning is saved If they live the rest of the six days of the week, however they desire, rather than as unto the Lord. Too many seek to be near to God for only a few moments, but their hearts are far from them. Jesus in Matthew 15, 8 says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. May it never be that that would be a testimony of people in this church. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are somewhere else. They're not devoted to Jesus Christ. My great prayer and desire then is that this would not be a description of any one of us in this room. Yet this is the terrifying reality that is awaiting many and perhaps some who are hearing this message this morning. So this morning we come to 2 Peter chapter 1, looking specifically at verses 10 and 11, words that reveal to us the answer to the question, how can I know that I'm saved? How can I have assurance of my salvation? How can I have hope? And that hope comes, Peter has been explaining, from cultivating Christian character in your life. That will help us answer the question, do I have assurance that I am saved? Can I ever know that I truly am saved? And the answer to those questions, beloved, is yes, you can know. The key point of the words of our text is that we can be sure of our salvation, and Peter is laying it out. He's revealing to us how, calling us to be zealous in our pursuit of the assurance of God, that God has called us, that God has chosen us, that God has prepared the way for us to enter into the kingdom of God. Peter's emphatic in this text. Every true believer has the means by which to know with absolute certainty the, uh, that God has saved him or her from their sins. I would rather rejoice in such words of assurance than remain in a state of wondering, a state of being fearful. What happens if I wake up tomorrow morning not to see this earth but to stand before the judge? And I said, Lord, I went to church. I gave some money to the church, and Jesus says, depart from me. 
I never knew you. Before we consider our points, I would draw your attention to the fact that Peter is actually drawing a conclusion in verses 10 and 11. This is seen by the use of the word therefore, reminding us that what he is saying here is the logical conclusion to everything that he's been saying that started all the way back up in verse 1. Recall in verses 1 through 4 how Peter revealed that everything necessary for our salvation, everything you need to be saved has been granted to you, given to you, not earned by you, but graciously given by Jesus Christ. You have received the faith, you have received the grace, the peace, the power, and the promises in those first four verses. In verse 3, we read that his, Jesus, divine power has granted us everything pertaining, everything necessary for life and godliness. Not one person in this room has to leave this, leave this place not knowing that God has given you everything you need to live correctly. The only thing that will keep you from living a life of godliness and a life of pleasing the Lord is your own sinful hardened heart and today the spirit of God speaks to you and calls you to relent and calls you to repent in verses 5 through 9 we considered the wonder that God had enabled believers to actually participate in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus not as a means of earning our salvation, but as a demonstration that we've actually been saved. How can I know I've been saved? Verses 5 through 9 reveal that to us. We learn that believers are those who are applying all diligence. We said kind of applying that maximum effort. I'm giving it my all to supply or choreograph in this faith that was given in verse 1, these God-given evidences of being saved. How can I know that I'm saved? And Peter writes, for this very reason, verse 5, also, applying all diligence, maximum effort in your faith supply, begin to choreograph in your life moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Beloved, in Christ, believers are given everything we need to live that life that pleases God. And Peter calls believers to apply with all diligence that kind of life. Again, to be clear, we do not apply all diligence to a godly life in order to earn salvation. It never says that. There are too many people that think that. If you think for a moment you're going to contribute anything to your salvation, you are on the wrong path. It is Christ and Christ alone, through faith and faith alone, because of the grace of God and his grace alone that we are saved. We are granted salvation in Christ, which in turn stirs us up to apply all diligence to live that godly life. And in verses 5 through 7, Peter shows us what that life looks like. And we just mark those, uh, that increasing in moral excellence where others see Christ in us. We, they see in us a life of increasing knowledge where they see pe people see and we see in ourselves this desire to know Christ more and to love him more fully. We've seen the idea of increasing in self-control where our hearts and our desires are driven by God, not by our sinful passions. We've seen this increasing perseverance causing us to stand firm in the faith till the end. 
It is a life of increasing godliness where we, we come to say, you know, at the end of the day, well, at the beginning of the day, my pursuit is to please God. That's what I want. It is a life of increasing brotherly kindness where you are demonstrating genuine affection and attention and activity towards other believers. And it is a life of increasing love, that commitment of seeking the highest good for another, regardless of the cost, and all for the glory of God. Beloved, that's the picture of a saved life. How closely do you resemble it? In verses 8 through 9, we saw that there was a test. These, that these things are found in your life. Are they, are they yours, <clears throat> and are they increasing, or are they lacking? <clears throat> For the believer, these things are present and therefore render us neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, if these things are not, if they are lacking, if they're not present in your life, if you are here today and you're like, I don't know that I have much of any of those or very little or I'm kind of uncertain, well, beware. Because if you profess to know Christ and there's, these things are lacking, you will hear the words, I never knew you. Depart from me. This all brings us to our text this morning in verses 10 through 11. That's kind of all, I don't know, there's been a mixture of ups and downs and all of that, right? Verses 10 through 11, we find two points that point us to the assurance that we can have if we are cultivating this Christian character that we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks. And the first point is the assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation. Look at the beginning of verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Our first point is clearly revealed to us there. Here, Peter is restating what he has already said in effect in verses 8 through 9. Only now, rather than making it a statement where he said, since believers possess and are increasing in these qualities, now it's turned into an exhortation. Now it's a command. Okay, you're... You're saved. You are applying all diligence to see the Christ-like character uh, uh, be developed within you. Now, here's the command. Since you possess these things, here it is. You ready? Get out there and do it. Make it manifest. Be certain these things are revealed and are true of you. In a sense, he's saying to be even all the more diligent in these things, uh, in, in this uh, command, uh, in his statement. Make sure you're living out these things by which you can experience assurance of salvation. And we see this through two uh, means. The first is the command. The command. Look at the command in verse 10. Here is this exhortation. What is it? Be diligent. Not just be diligent. We've already read that in verse 5. What's it say here? Be all the more diligent. The word for diligent, again, the same word that's found in verse 5, means applying maximum effort, but also carries the idea of urgency and zeal. I've got to do this. Do you today possess that kind of zeal? I must see Christ at work in me. I must see these things manifest in me. I desire nothing else. I don't want to be found coming up short. I do not want to be found lacking in anything. And what did Peter say? If you're a believer, you don't lack in one thing. 
The idea is that we must do this now and we must do it well. Why must we have this great urgency and zeal? Because to not have this could leave us in the verse 9 status, which would be that we're lacking something, that these things aren't present in you. And so Peter says, be all the more diligent. Apply, you, you were applying maximum effort before, now take it up a notch. If you were at 100%, now's the time to try to see if you can go to 200%. That's the idea. To do what? Be all the more diligent to make certain, to have full assurance that God is at work in your life by seeing these things worked out in your life. But notice how Peter summarizes the qualities of verses 5 through 7 here in verse 10. Applying all diligence in one's faith, supply, of course, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And here he equates those seven qualities to all be, to being uh, diligent. As you see those things in your life, this is how you are certain that God has what? Called you and has chosen you. It's a mathematical equation. How can I know that God has called me and chosen me? Do I see these things evident in my life? Simple as that. As Peter will point out in a moment, the way by which we can be certain and we belong to the Lord is that, uh, that he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, that he has chosen us to be holy and blameless, is as we see the qualities of Christian character worked out in our lives. The verb here to make certain is very interesting. Make certain, be all the more diligent, make certain. It's in the middle voice, which I know means nothing to most of us, right? Middle voice. But what is it saying? It should be, it could be translated this way. Be making for yourselves your certainty. This is about you. This is about what you can know if you are seeing these things manifest in your life. It is in the present tense. So it's saying this is always going to be your pursuit. There's never a time that you can stop and say, well, I, I don't have to worry about my assurance anymore. I've arrived. No, continue to make certain for yourself, by yourself, that you have these things at work in your life. It's not what the pastor can bestow upon you. I've had so many people in my office over the years, Pastor, I, I, I prayed a prayer and I walked an aisle 20 years ago. Uh, that means I'm saved, right? Well, what are you doing now? Well, I'm hanging out in bars and I've cheated on my wife and I've done. I can't give you any assurance. you got to be crazy. I can't do that. Only you can know if you come to the word of God. I will say this, just to back up what, what I do say in that, is that by all intents and purposes, I don't believe you're saved. You might have been, but let's get this taken care of first because that's the most important thing. It doesn't matter what happened 20 years ago. You're not living for the Lord now. Let's get fi this figured out that you're living for the Lord now. Then we can talk about assurance. So anyway, that's a side note. I won't charge you for that little, little bit there. We are to be making for ourselves and continually making for ourselves our certainty of what Peter says is God's calling and choosing of us. Beloved, robust spiritual growth confirms that God has chosen, has called and chosen us. But I want to speak to this issue of the calling and choosing. 
Peter's use of these two nouns, the calling and the choosing technically, or the call and the election of you are intimately related to one thing, your salvation. If you are called, you are saved. If you are chosen, you are saved. If the exhortation is to be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, then it stands the reason we better know what it means to be called and to be chosen. So let's talk about the calling. The calling speaks of the call of salvation that comes upon every believer in Christ. Now I need to explain to you that in the New Testament there are two different callings. There is a general call of the gospel. Everyone who hears the gospel is called. They're called to respond. They're called to repent. Not everyone who hears the gospel that way will respond. That's just a general call, a message to every human being to come to Christ and be forgiven. We see Jesus referred to this general call in Matthew twenty-two fourteen when he said, For many are called, you know what the rest says, but few are chosen. So a general call goes out, and the chosen ones will respond. And we'll take a look at what that means in just a moment. This is not the kind of calling, that general call is not what Peter refers to in our text. What Peter speaks of here is specific, and it is special in what we often refer to as the effectual call of God, that when God calls those that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world to be his own, there will be that moment when he says, Joe, come, and guess what Joe does? He comes because it's an effectual call. It is a call that will always accomplish the purpose of God. The calling of God speaks then to that, what, that which takes place in the heart of a person. When the gospel is preached, God summons, God calls that person who hears the gospel so that the listener now longs for nothing more than to respond in faith. The effectual call of God is that which calls us to be saved. The general call can be ignored and is often ignored. Even in this congregation, there are those who ignore the general call. But the effectual call of God will always result in salvation. This is the calling Peter is referring to in our text. He speaks of this call to salvation, a call that has transformed, a call that has changed you, a call that is making you all the more diligent to see these characteristics that we've been studying manifest in your life. Now, I want to show you something. Uh, you're going to have to just listen or you can follow. I'm going to be in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, okay? So get your Bibles ready. Peter loves the word call, the effectual call of God. The first time he uses it is in 1 Peter 1.15, where he wrote, But like the Holy One who called you, who summoned you to himself to be his child, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. The call, of, the call here is the summons of God that effectually enables you to live like the one who saves you in holiness. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter wrote this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who what? Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a salvific call. It is a call that has effectually brought you from a state of death to a state of life. It enables you to respond moving out of darkness and that sinfulness that you once walked in and now to walk joyfully and righteously in the life that he has granted to you. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21, Peter says it again, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Here, beloved, the effectual call is to live a life that God has appointed for all who believe. And what is the example you follow? What does he want you to look like? Or who does he want you to look like? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's given you that example. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we read this, Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called, you were summoned by God to be one of his children for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Those who have a gen- general call don't get a blessing, but the saved do. The believer's calling, the summons to God is effectual, leading them to a life of godly kindness, even in the face of opposition. The last time Peter uses this word is in first, in, in first Peter is found in chapter 5, verse 10, where we read this. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here is God's summons calling believers to share in the eternal glory with Christ. In addition to our, our 2 Peter 1.10 text, Peter uses the word in 2 Peter 1.3, if you go up into chapter or, or this chapter, verse 3, where he says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who what? Called, you, called us by his own glory and excellence. Peter loves this idea. And you know what that teaches me? Here's a takeaway. Do you love to think about God has summoned you? Can you think back to the day when you heard the summons of God? And I know that that our salvific experiences vary and some have more grown into the faith, but I remember very clearly on April 29th, 1984, the summons of God on my life. I can look back on that, and I know he called me. In this first, uh, Second Peter 1.3, the context is with regard to God summoning to salvation. With such a call, it is always, beloved, always to something specific and definite. It's not a general call. When God calls his people to salvation, God gets results. I love that. I might call some people. I, I mean, at 11 o'clock, or uh, yeah, 11 o'clock when I'm calling everybody in the second hour, uh, my call is not effectual sometimes. <laughs> Many of you resist that call. I promise you, I would think in this group, if God said, hey, it's time, <laughs> you'd be in here. Right? You would respond to that call. That's a very specific call. 
The calling of verse 10 is the sovereign hand of God bringing his people to himself to accomplish his purposes, not only of saving us, but of enabling us to bring him glory by the way in which we conduct our lives. That's the calling. But he also uses another word, very interesting, that he feels the necessity not to just speak of salvation in terms of the calling, but now also the choosing. The choosing. Which is also rightly translated, by the way, this way, the election. By his, make all the more certain of his choosing, of his calling and his election of you. We could say, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and electing you. We know about the idea of elections in our country, that process by which citizens may choose or elect their representatives in a variety of offices with the one receiving the most votes to, to obtain that office. It is the same concept at, the, at, at work with regard to our salvation. Only rather than millions of people voting for one office, there's one person who votes all who he will have occupy the station of the children of God, the redeemed. He, God, elects them to this station. The scriptures are clear that God has done this electing willingly, that he has done it completely, that he has done it unforced, that he's not coerced in any way with regard to whom he chooses. He's not influenced by anyone anyone or anything other than himself. Anything other than that is unbiblical. God has chosen by himself, for himself, and to himself those whom he would save. We see this in Ephesians 1, 4, where we find the very same verb that's used by Peter. Peter's using the noun, but the verb here, we read, just as God, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. I've heard some people do some whacked out hermeneutical gymnastics to try to say, well, you know, he looks down the corridor of time. To, no, that's influence. That's, that's something else dictating to God. This doesn't say this. The verb is clear in the Greek language. He chose by himself, for himself, and to himself, without reference to anyone or anything else, those he would have to be holy and blameless. It's all of God. God's election of those whom he will save has nothing to do with those who are saved and everything to do with God's own sovereign will. I'm going to pause for just a moment. And sometimes I get a question, why did God choose me? You know, you ever ask, why would God choose me? Well, it's his sovereign will. Does that satisfy you? Why? What, what is it? I can tell you it didn't have anything to do with you, and I can tell you that the Bible gives an answer. You read in Ephesians chapter 1, the answer is given. Why did God choose me before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless? So as to be to the praise and the glory of his name. I know that doesn't satisfy everybody. That's what the Bible says. That's all I got. Silver and gold I have not. So God does not look down the corridor of time and see that Ed's going to believe on Jesus, and then based on Ed's choosing Jesus, he chooses Ed. 
That is not biblical, and both Peter and Paul are clear that God's election is not based upon such outside influences. Beloved, the only reason why any of us will ever come to God is because he chooses and calls us. And I know that begs the question for some who are wrestling, well, maybe he doesn't call me. I'm telling you, you are being called today, and the only thing that keeps you from receiving Jesus Christ is your own stubborn sinfulness. Repent, and he will meet you, and you will be the called and the chosen. You will never be able to say before God, hey, when Jesus says, uh, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, I knew that anyway because uh, I knew I was never the called, so I never responded. No, you didn't respond because you were a sinner in rebellion to God and God's mercy was made available to you. All you needed to do is respond in faith. Beloved, we come because we've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30 gives us what we like to refer to as the golden chain of salvation, this, this link after link of what God has done. Listen to what it says, those whom God foreknew, knew beforehand, he also predestined, chose beforehand, to become conformed to the image of a son. These he predestined, he also called, there's our word called, those whom he called, he also justified, made right, and these whom he justified, he also glorified, brings them fully to completion in Christ. Beloved, the electing love of God is one of the most fundamental concepts in all of Scripture. We find it first in the book of Genesis with God's choice of Adam over all the other creatures. I just want to remind you that in the entire Bible is a book about God's election. He elected to make the heavens and the earth. He elected to, to make Adam the pinnacle of all of his creation. He elected Eve to be the helpmeet of Adam. He elected Noah and his family to save from the, the, the sin that had predominated the, the world. He elected Abraham to be the, the special recipient of his love and covenant. He elected Israel out of all the nations of the earth, the puniest, the smallest, perhaps the most pathetic of all the nations to be the recipients of his love. And we follow that election all the way down through to our own salvation. Our God is an electing, choosing God, and we should be in awe that he has chosen anybody at all. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, those verses that we love to hear, Peter comes along and he lays out a truth that ought to both perplex the mind and bring joy to the heart. He says, in effect, uh, if we think about that, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He's saying, in effect, think about how God has chosen everything according to his own plan. And now think about this. If you are in Christ, he's chosen you. You are in a long line of election. And if you think what God did in the Old Testament was grand and all the things that he chose uh, out of this world, just stop and be in awe that he chose you to be the recipient of his salvation.
Peter takes all of those Old Testament ideas of a sovereign God who chooses and he applies those, those things to those who make up the church, including the Gentiles now, declaring the, to them that since they have believed on Christ, they are now the chosen ones of God. They are God's elect. Oh, how Peter loved the idea of choosing as much as he uh, loved the word uh, uh, calling. For he started in his first letters with it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are what? Chosen. Chosen how? Because of the great things that I can bring to God. I'm the best person for God's team. A co- a co- chosen according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. Before the foundation of the world, before there was a day or a sky or the stars, God chose. God elected us. Then at the right time, God called us to believe upon Christ and be saved. All of these ideas are built into Peter's understanding of what he wrote in our text in verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and his choosing. Now, I've spent much time on the words calling and choosing because we must know that both of these words describe not what we've done. There's nothing in there about us again. I know I belabor the point, but we are people who want to take credit for things that we don't have any reason to take credit for. And Peter is just pushing that out of the way, and he reminds the believers, in effect, that in in view of the incredible work of God in our salvation now, I exhort you to apply maximum effort to know with certainty that God has called you, that God has chosen you to bring you to salvation. How, Peter? It is a salvation that reveals itself in increasing moral excellence and an increasing knowledge of Christ and an increasing uh, attitude of self-control and perseverance in that list that we've been looking at for a couple of weeks. That's the fruit of your salvation. There's absolutely nothing casual about this. There's nothing optional about it. I fear that we, in our modern expression of Christianity, we live in a world that we can choose so many different things. We can choose to do stuff and not do stuff. We can say, today I want a soda, tomorrow I'm going to be healthy and just drink water. And We have all of these choices, and we can do whatever we want. Everything's an option. Today I'm going to cheat on my, on my diet. Tomorrow I'll be good. This isn't optional. If you're a believer who possesses all of the promises of God, if you're a believer who has all of these, you possess these qualities and you see them increasing, this is not an option. This is who you are. It'd be like asking a fish not to be a fish. It it has to be. The best evidence of God's call and choice on a life is a life that's manifesting the increasing characteristics of Christianity, of Christ, which we've been looking at. We are to be certain that God has called us to salvation. At first glance, that's kind of a strange thing. Hey, Brett, I need you to be certain. You make sure that you're called and chosen of God. And he's like, how how can I do that? 
How is that in me? How can Peter call his readers to make sure that God is working in their lives, exhorting them to make sure they know that God has chosen them before the foundation of the world to believe in Christ, exhorting them to, to be certain that God has called them to spend eternity with him? I mean, Peter might as well have asked us to make sure it rains tomorrow. How am I supposed to do that? How can I make sure God is working in my life? And yet, while this is the work of God, if God's word says we can know, then guess what? We can know. We can know that God is working in our lives. How can I know this? How can I know that I'm chosen? How can I know that I'm called? How can I know that I'm saved? How can I be sure of my salvation? Have we not at all at some point or another wrestled with those questions? How can I know? And that leads us to our second point, the assurance of sanctification. So not only can we, are we to have assurance of our salvation, but then we kind of, it leads us to the question, if I, if I am going to be assured of my salvation, how can I do that? Well, Peter says you have to be assured of your sanctification. The best way to have certainty that God has saved you is to see that God has sanctified you. And I know that's a big term. It simply means that I see God making me more and more like Jesus, making me long to, to know Jesus better and better. And Peter's informing his readers that those whom God saves, he sanctifies. And those whom God calls to live holy, God-pleasing lives, he enables them to do that. So if you're not living a holy life, it's an indication that you have no certainty of God's calling and choosing of you. See how easy that is? Huh. Yeah, right. So we are to look at our lives and we're to ask ourselves this very simple question. Is God producing fruit in my life? You want to have assurance of salvation? You want to have assurance of sanctification? Just ask yourself, what's my fruit? What's coming out? Is anything good coming out of me? And so we look at that by means of, of two thoughts here. First, the practice. No, no, notice how verse 10 ends. Peter wrote, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. As long as you practice what things? You know, don't you? You should know this by now. Verses 5 through 7, right? As long as you practice those things, as you are diligent to cultivate those char seven characteristics in your life, you can be certain of God's calling and choosing of you. How can we have assurance of salvation? Peter says, in essence, look at the fruit of your life. Do you see God sanctifying you? Do you see yourself as set apart from the things of this world? Do you see God creating in you these qualities? I know we've done it so many times. Let's do it one more time. Do you see God producing moral excellence in you? This is the test. This is the, this is the question. Do you see God producing an increasing excellence, a, a moral behavior in you? Is it your desire to live like Jesus, and is that increasing? That's a good sign. Is God producing knowledge of him in you? Is it your desire to know Jesus better, to know him more fully? Is God producing self-control in you? Are you experiencing those increasing victories over the sins that so easily beset you? 
Are you, is, is God producing perseverance in you? When the difficult times come, are you experiencing the sustaining joy of God through them? Is God producing godliness in you? Are you desiring to live a life that's more and more pleasing to God? Is God producing brotherly kindness in you? Are you willingly and actively showing affection and attention and actions, godly actions toward other believers? And is God producing a love in you for others? Are, th are these attitudes and actions in your life? Do you see them as yours? Do you see them as increasing? Why do we ask all of that? Because Peter says so simply, if you see these things, you can be certain. If you practice these things, you can be certain. You can have assurance that God is sanctifying you. And if God is sanctifying you, you can be certain that God has saved you. I started with Matthew 7. Let me go back to it for just a moment. Because there's some verses in between the narrow and the broad way that Jesus spoke of. And those terrifying words, depart from me, I never knew you. We have some other familiar and instructive words from Jesus stuck right in the middle, and it's these. In Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes do, are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them, how? By their fruits. Now, in context, Jesus is speaking about how do you identify false teachers, false prophets, which Peter's going to address in chapter 2, if we ever get there. Um, a false prophet is one who makes a claim to be what? A true prophet. A false prophet is somebody who may actually even speak true things at times. But Jesus says, how you, are you to recognize them? Do you see the fruit? And Jesus didn't define the fruit for us, but Peter has. Peter has given us some of that. The standard of knowing them by their fruits is precisely what Peter's getting at in our text. Peter had learned this lesson from whom? Jesus. What he's writing in the text is right out of these ideas that he, Peter was there. He heard these particular words. And so we find Peter will deal with these issues of, of the false teachers in chapter 2. But right now, he's dealing more with, I want the congregation. I want you who are reading this letter. Uh, and for me, I want you who are hearing these words being preached today to understand this. If there's no fruit in your life, you're not sanctified. You're not in a process of sanctification. Therefore, you can't have any assurance of salvation. Oh, but pastor, I, I try, I strive after these things. Again, I'm not trying to say that if there's something little, that that's not a good thing. We just want little to become what? More and more, bigger and bigger. Before all of this, though, this looking at the false teachers, how can you look at a false teacher and say, I'm going to judge that, that person by their fruit if you have not first judged yourself by 
is the truth. What is God producing in me? How is God sanctifying me? What am I practicing? What am I putting into practice daily? Am I practicing verses 5 through 7 by the grace of God? Well, that leads us to the second statement. Not only is there the practice, but there are the promises. How can we have this assurance that God's at work in us, sanctifying us, bringing us to salvation? We look at our lives to see the way God is at work. So long as we see God at work, we may know with certainty we are saved. We can, have, we can be certain that God has called and chosen us. But at the end, let us note that God has done it all. We get trapped into this idea that, Pastor, you're talking about things that I'm supposed to do. Doesn't that mean that I do something to be saved? No, you're seeing these things so that you know that you're saved, not because you're trying to earn your salvation. God has done it all. When we, when we do this, when we practice these precepts, we're diligent to them, notice the two promises that we have. And we'll call these the promises of sanctification. And the first one is this. If you do these things, if you practice these things, you will never what? Stumble. You will never stumble. What a wonderful promise. As God is at work in us, as we are being diligent to cultivate these qualities of Christian character, the evidence of God working in us, we never, we have this promise that we will never stumble. Now, the idea of never stumbling is not saying that we never sin. To be sure, Christians do sin. James chapter 3, verse 2, we're told that we all stumble in many ways. So that is not what it means to never stumble. The idea behind this promise is that believers will never stumble out of salvation. They will never stumble out of grace. They will never fall from grace or lose their salvation. God promises to deliver such a one. The promise here is much like the one made in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, that those who have been born again by God are thus protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Who keeps you saved? God, you do not. The point is, since God has called believers and since God has chosen believers, he will safely deliver believers through every trial, every suffering into his glorious presence that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. But the question is, how is this promise to be realized? It is realized by those who diligently apply maximum effort into, and I'll go back, practicing. That word practice, by the way, I got ahead of myself. It, it means making. It means to be creating a masterpiece. Here is the idea of, uh, I, I love this, here is that idea of supply, back in verse 5, supply in your faith. In our faith, we are to supply or choreograph all of these characteristics the idea of choreograph means that all of these things are yours, and now you're to arrange them in such a way. And Peter says, now make them, practice them, make a masterpiece. It is from the same root word as Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. We are his poema. We are his masterpiece. And now Peter comes along and he says, you make something with what God has given you because you're saved. Put it all together. I, I, I'm thinking about 
about little kids and you can give them some, some uh, construction paper and some scissors and some glue. You give them everything they need and they can cut out things and they can make a card for mom. They can make a card for grandpa, whatever it is. And they have all of those pieces and they make a masterpiece. And some of those things, I mean, they're weird looking, but they are masterpieces, are they not? You might say, I don't know if I'm, gonna make, I'm not very good at making anything. Just, just do it. God will love it. I made my mom a, a clay turtle like in first grade, the weirdest looking thing, and I painted it all these weird colors, and, and, uh, but still around. Don't know why. Well, I know why. Because it was a masterpiece. It's not going to be sold for millions of dollars, but it's a masterpiece. We belong to the Lord, so let us behave as those that the Lord has enabled to live this way. I'd also have you note that our assurance of salvation and the sanctification is not founded in, in being able to say that you prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, or gave your life to Christ at some time in the past. I pray that you have come to Christ at some point in the past, but the t truth is that God sanctifies those whom he saves. There is a present reality of God not only having worked in your life, but continually, presently at work in your life, conforming you more and more to his image. Now, because of some of this, maybe new to some of you, I wanna make a distinction between what we call eternal security and assurance of salvation. You might have heard those terms before. They are related terms, but they're different. Eternal security is not assurance of salvation, although there, there's a relationship to them. What is eternal security? Eternal security is the doctrine that God knows whom he saves, and he saves them, and when they are saved, they're forever saved. He knows whom he's chosen, and they're going to be chosen, and there's no issue with that. He's got it. It may be summed up with the adage, once saved, always saved. We see it in 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and, 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 uh, and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, because of what I did, know who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You, you, let me put, say it this way. Eternal security is from God's perspective. God knows whom he, is saves, whom he saves and, the, and he saves those whom he saves he cannot unsave. Okay? We can be confident that, that, that those whom God has called that he is faithful to bring them to heaven. Now, the other doctrine is the doctrine of assurance of salvation. And assurance is not from God's perspective, but from our perspective. It's answering the question, how can I know that I'm saved? And the assurance of salvation is recognized how. I've just been telling you. How are you living? How is your life being a display of sanctification? As we are obedient to the word, as you see the qualities of faith being worked out in your life, you can be assured that you are bound for heaven. And when you are disobedient, that assurance will fade away. It doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved, but the longer you're in a state of not doing these things, you come up lacking, and that puts you in a very precarious circumstance. Your assurance of salvation is based on your experience of continual fruit, those Christian qualities that we've been looking at. Too often people look only to some past event and some past experience of sanctification. 
John MacArthur tells a story of the time that he spent with a fellow pastor. Uh, allow me to share the story. He was driving with this pastor around the, the city of this particular pastor. MacArthur wrote this. We passed a large liquor store, and I happened to mention that it was an unusual-looking place. Yes, the other pastor said. There, there is a whole chain of those stores around the city, all owned by one man. He's a member of my Sunday school class. I wondered aloud what that man's life was like, and the minister replied, Oh, he's quite faithful. He's in class every week. MacArthur asked, Does it bother him that he owns all those liquor stores? Uh, the pastor replied, We talked about it some. But he feels that people are going to buy liquor anyway, so why not buy it from him? I asked, well, what is his life like? Well, the pastor said he did leave his wife, and he's been living with a young girl. Then after several minutes of my bewildered and uncomfortable silence, he added, you know, sometimes it's hard for me to understand how a Christian can live like that. MacArthur then commented, I must confess that it's hard for me to understand how someone who teaches the Bible can assume that a man living in wanton rebellion against God's standards is a Christian merely because he claims to be, even though he attends Sunday school every week. Beloved, if God is not working in your life to produce Christian graces, you have no assurance. So long as you're seeing your faith working itself out in moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, then you can have assurance. And this is the first promise that you will never stumble away from that. And let's look at the second promise very quickly. Pastor's always long-winded. I call it the grand entrance, a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom. Notice what verse 11 says. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. The, the, the statement for in this way takes us all the way back to, to that statement for as long as you practice or make these things. Here Peter is stressing. He's, he's addressing our participation in sanctification. But don't miss the point. Our human participation does not earn entry into the kingdom. Rather, human activity is the way that, uh, uh, that leads to the eternal kingdom. It doesn't earn it. It leads you to it. The idea of entrance here, what does it mean? If you're doing these things, if you're practicing these things, the word entrance there speaks of the triumphal entry of a conqueror, of a king into a city. But notice what's happening here. Believers are participating with God in supplying in their faith all the evidences that God is at work and, and, and we see God's response to that faithfulness. He's given us everything and God says now, as you do these things, you will come triumphantly into the kingdom. You will not be cowering. You'll not stand there in that day and be saying, I wonder if Jesus is going to say to me, depart from me, I never knew you. As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble and your entrance into the kingdom will be glorious. Let me end very quickly here by having you note one thing as we wrap up these 11 verses, what I would say is kind of the introduction of the letter. The Apostle Peter has focused on one person and one person alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I have this uh, up for you. Notice this, all of the language that's used here. 
He's the bondservant and apostle of who? Jesus Christ. He acknowledges Christ as our God and Savior in verse 1. In verse 2, Jesus is, it's Jesus our Lord. In verse 8, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 11, it's our Lord and Savior. Peter speaks of the righteousness of our God and Savior in verse 1. The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord in verse 2. And of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 11. This exaltation of Jesus Christ offers support for the view that our God in verse 1 and his divine power in verse 3 and him that called us in verse 3 are references to Jesus Christ. The cultivation of Christian character begins, beloved, by being Christocentric, Christ-centered, Christ-focused, Christ-honoring, christ your eyes are fixed on Christ. Then we will be able to supply in our faith the qualities that reveal that God is at work in us, giving us the hope of the promise of eternal security, of assurance of salvation. From start to finish, our salvation is about Christ. He, at the end of verse 11, abundantly supplies. That's the same word supply from verse 5. Only he abundantly supplies. God has choreographed the whole thing from beginning to end. We get to play in the middle, but God, from beginning to end, brings us to salvation. This book is about Christ. From start to finish, our lives are to be about Christ. And so I call you to cultivate Christian character because that's what God expects of those who are his own. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for so wondrously providing salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for each one here who can truly name the name of Christ, who delights in seeing that you have not only been at work in the past, but you are at work in their lives in the present. We can have such great assurance of salvation. Father, I also pray, though, for those who are concerned about assurance, who may not be walking with the Lord, that today is the day that God is calling them to repent of their sins, to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved, to believe that Jesus Christ paid the price for their sin, that he is the, the one who will forgive their sin, and he's the one that will cleanse them and change them and enable them to be a person who delights in moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. And so, Father, we pray that you will do that work in those who may be doubting their, their salvation. And Father, if there be anyone who feels the need now to, to confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that you raise him from the dead, to call upon the name of the Lord, I pray that you would, would stir them up <clears throat> to do that right now in this moment in their heart. And Father, may that one also come and speak to me or speak to one of the elders that they may get this sorted out, that they might know they have assurance of sanctification, which leads to assurance of salvation. Lord, thank you for causing us to be born again to a living hope of making us your own, allowing us to say we belong to the Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.